afternoon. My name is David Lisa, and I'm your host today for this edition of Thinker's Corner on the Frontier Centers for Public Policy. So welcome to the Center for Public Policy. We're uh, going to uh, discuss another interesting topic today, and we're so glad that everyone could join us today. Please feel free to uh, think about your questions and utilize the chat. Uh, but for now, we're going to set the stage. Will Alberta stay or go? That is the question. And today's conversation is with Tom Flanagan, one of the editors and co-authors of a new book entitled Moment of Truth, How to Think About Alberta's Future. And here is the book. And um, uh, Tom, I want to offer you a warm welcome and then certainly an introduction. Um, this, uh, this session is being recorded and uh, it can also be referenced later on other social media, including YouTube. Um, I want to just set the stage a little bit and then introduce you, Tom. Um, but certainly we'd all agree that um, Alberta is at a crossroads. And it's fascinating how within the Canadian Federation, we see the marks of, of many things, including unfairness. And um, like a Westerner, you can see um, a great deal of frustration um, as Alberta struggles with those realities. And there are so many of them, and it's a fascinating history. And this book, I thought, does a, an incredible job mapping out how to think about this, uh, this topic. And we'll, we'll certainly delve into that in a moment. But um, a warm welcome to Tom Flanagan. He uh, studied political science at Notre Dame University, uh, the Free University of West Berlin and Duke University, where he received his PhD. He taught political science and public policy at the University of Calgary from 1968 to 2019. He was elected to the Royal Society of Canada in 1996, and Dr. Flanagan is best known as a scholar for his books on Louis Riel, the Northwest Rebellion, and Aboriginal Land Claims. His books, First Nations, Second Thoughts, received both the Donner Prize and the Canadian Political Science Association's Donald Smiley Prize for the best book on Canadian politics published in the year 2000. His most recent book on Aboriginal issues, The Wealth of First Nations, was shortlisted for the 2019 Donner Prize from 1991 to 2012, uh, Dr. Flanagan was actually a key advisor to a number of governments, including that of Stephen Harper. So we're delighted to have you, Tom, and uh, so glad that you could uh, work together as a team to, to produce this book. Well, yeah, pleasure to be here, David. Well, Tom, um, you know, this is, uh, this is really quite a far-ranging set of topics related to Confederation and history and, of course, Alberta. Um, but I just want to start off with a question. Why did you write this book? Well, let me explain. First of all, the book was really the idea of Jack Mintz and Jack brought in uh, Ted Martin and me to help him uh, do the book. Jack is, I think, today considered today's Can uh, Canada's leading economics commentator. It's not widely known that Jack is from Alberta and has a deep attachment to the province, even though he's, he now spends more time in Toronto. So uh, as an economic commentator, Jack is very much aware of the, the problems that Alberta faces and he wanted to, uh, he wanted to deal with them. And, 
in a, not just a purely economic way, but to bring in politics as well. So he recruited uh, Ted Morton and me. Ted, remember, was a former treasurer of Alberta, spent about 10 years in the legislature, as well as being a professor of political science. Uh, so anyway, the three of us then recruited authors and put the book together. So that's the short history of where it comes from. All right. Um, now, there have been a lot of books on this topic, and you, you would see the bigger picture over the years um, around the challenges of Alberta and among other provinces within our federation. Um, just to get a, a bit of a temperature read on this, are you concerned, more concerned, that is, than uh, for, Al for Alberta and Canada's future than you've ever been? Well, I'm probably more concerned than I've been uh, since the 1970s, put it that way. Um, in, in some ways, what we're <coughs> facing now is, is a, like a replay of the 1970s with um, harmful policy ideas running wild across the country. And you see, the background here to, to, the, to the views that we express in this book is that Jack Mintz and Ted Morton and I, uh, we're all in our 70s. We've all been engaged in politics and public policy for many years. And we thought we had made some progress um, with um, uh, a partial turn towards conservative policy in the 1980s under Brian Mulroney, and then again under Stephen Harper. And even under the liberals, we got the liberals to face up to the, the impossibility of running deficits forever. And, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin balanced the budget in the 1990s. And we sort of thought the tide was, was flowing our way. And then um, 2015 with the election of the, uh, the Liberals federally and before that with the election of the NDP to provincial government in Alberta, suddenly seemed that everything had, had changed. And the victories that we thought we had achieved of uh, balanced budgets and lower taxation and uh, uh, reasonable regulation of industry and so forth. Uh, and we see these victories slipping away and it looks like we're in for another long spell of, of, of damaging policy. Um, and so we're trying to head this off with particular reference to what it means for Alberta, but it is actually part of a, uh, a nationwide, I don't know if you want to call it a crisis, but a, a nationwide challenge. Remember Alberta of course is identified with oil and gas, but Oil and gas are also produced in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, could be produced in New Brunswick and uh, Quebec if the governments would allow it. And at time one uh, were produced in Ontario. That's where our industry started in Canada. And there's actually, of course, a lot of oil and gas in the Northwest Territories. So uh, th this is a national challenge of a, a major industry being deliberately hamstrung and Alberta is harmed the most, but the whole country is harmed as well. Indeed. So there's, I, I guess I was struck by that as well, is that this is not just simply about Alberta. This is about many other provinces within a constitutional framework, a, a way a country works that is really, frankly, ill-designed to meet the, the challenges of today. Is that right? Yeah, uh, Alberta is kind of like the canary in the coal mine. I mean, we're feeling the effects worse of uh, rampant uh, green and anti-industrial policy, but other parts of the country are also feeling it. Uh, and we've had, Jack can provide all the, the data on Canada's having the lowest gro economic growth rate in the G7 
since uh, 2015. Um, you know, there's difficulties all over. Uh, our budgetary deficit is, is has spiraled out of control and parliamentary budget officer said there's not likely to be balanced until the year 2070. <laughs> if you can, I mean, it's, you can hardly say that without laughing. Um, so Alberta's dilemma is real and it's painful for us here, but it's actually, it's emblematic of problems uh, across the country. So the editors, the three of us were not separatists, um, but we we felt we had to look at the separatist option and some of the some of the contributors to the book are separatists and would be very much like to go down that path. And so we have some essays about, you know, what might be involved in that. But we also have essays about how separatism could be headed off. What kind of changes might uh, might help to rescue the situation. So can you give us a little bit of a tour here, Tom, of the book? Um, it, it's, it's just really stunning in terms of the scope of its history. And indeed, as your reference, it's not just about Alberta, it's really about the country and the future of our country. So can you kind of walk us through those kind of key themes? Because they're pretty powerful. Well, there's, you know, about a dozen contributions and I, I can't summarize them all. But let me start with the chapters that Ted Morton and I wrote because we're both political scientists and we, we look at this in, in a political context. And uh, between the two of us, we've covered uh, political history of Alberta from actually prior to provincial status, going back to the days of the Northwest Territories uh, and right up to the to the present. Um, so to kind of summarize what we found, uh, you know, right from the very beginning, Alberta, like the other Western uh, Prairie provinces, was treated as a second class province, um, did not have control of public lands and natural resources. These were controlled uh, from Ottawa and that put our three prairie provinces behind right from the start. We finally did get control uh, in the 1930s, but a lot had been had been taken, <laughs> used up by then. Uh, the land had been given away. Um, the it, It's a history of, if you remember the Greek myth of Sisyphus, uh, Sisyphus is, I can't remember what his crime was, but he's condemned by Zeus to roll a rock uphill for all eternity. And when the rock gets to the top of the hill, then it rolls back down. Yes. Sisyphus has to start all over. And uh, that's Actually, how I see the, the history of Alberta. Um, if I recall, was a um, legendary king with a knack for cheating death. And so Zeus didn't like that. So then he gave him this assignment. To well, maybe that's rock. right. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. So we're, we're Sisyphus out here. We have been trying to roll this rock uphill uh, in the North, first in the Northwest Territories and then in the province of Alberta, um, you know, for well over a hundred years. And sometimes we think we've achieved victories. Uh, North, uh, the Natural Resources Transfer Agreement, the uh, discovery of oil in, in Alberta, the constitutional changes of 1982, um, which uh, reaffirmed provincial control over public lands and natural resources, the uh, uh, creation of a national party, uh, starting with reform and then uh, through the merger, a, a new conservative party in which reformers were uh, a major force and Albertans in particular, election of a Alberta uh, citizen as a prime minister. You know, so we thought that these and other things thought we, we thought we had made progress in protecting our resources, but it's, it seems that something always happens to yank that out. So uh, 
Stephen Harper said that Canada could be an energy superpower, but in 2015, we elect a government which starts shutting down uh, pipeline projects, Northern Gateway closed off by the Liberals. They stand and do nothing while um, other pipelines are, are, are blocked in other ways. Uh, you know, we, so we have a chronic shortage of capacity for our main exports. We get a new regulatory system, um, which makes it harder to build anything new. We have uh, heavy taxes being loaded on our our main uh, product. Um, you know, the list the list is extremely long, and it's. Uh, I think the point is not to kill the industry immediately, but to prevent it from growing. Right. Try and euthanize it over a period of time. The uh, the government seems to think that uh, we may have to have hydrocarbons for a while, but we can gradually get rid of them and replace them with sunbeams and wind. Um, yes. And it's, it's too bad about Albertans in the meantime. So you can hardly expect the province to take this lying down with, without reacting against it. Um, yeah, so you know, and I would say that that struck me, Tom. I am not an Albertan. I'm someone who, I, who grew up in um, southern Ontario. I live in BC. And I tell you, I was actually quite upset reading the book. I um, have always been a keen student of, of um, uh, watching the Canadian Federation, but the, the analysis, was com- analysis was compelling how Alberta, not to mention other provinces, have really been treated unfairly within our confederation. The, the dollar amounts here are stunning. It's not just from, say, equalization. Um, it's, it's really almost all the programs are really tilted to take money out of Alberta, among other provinces, to such a degree. Um, these, uh, these figures end up being quite significant. And the irony that so much of the oil and gas industry is not seen as a national resource, but as a regional resource. Is that well, right? That's right. Yeah, we have this imbalance in, our, in the Federation. We have a um, majority of people, uh, like almost two-thirds of people, concentrated in Quebec and Ontario. And then we have the uh, Western provinces being rich in natural resources. This is you know, a bit of an oversimplification, but it's, it's the basic picture. So the political temptation... Uh, is almost overwhelming for politicians in a democracy to make appeals to uh, the vote-rich parts of the country by plundering the resource-rich parts of the country, uh, creaming off the surplus, and uh, transferring it. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is an old story in Canada. Uh, we went through this in the early 1980s with the national energy policy, right. which was finally defeated and, and, and rolled back. Now, that was bad enough, but at least the government at that time saw the oil and gas industry as a source of revenue. They didn't want to kill the industry. They wanted to appropriate the economic rents. Um, what's different is that this time, the, uh, uh, the government sees the industry itself as detrimental and has, has a plan to euthanize the industry over uh, a period of time. So this is even more dangerous than the uh, national energy uh, policy of the 19, okay. uh, 1980s. So today, Tom, then, are you're saying that one of the key variables on our landscape now is the fact that we have a federal government that does want to phase out the oil and gas industry. Yeah, yeah, it's very... Uh, you know, uh, Justin said it before he was elected. He said, we may have to leave it all on the ground. 
Now he then later walked it back when he realized maybe that was, uh, uh, you know, they say it's a, a, when a politician says the truth is gaff. I guess he realized that this was a gaff because he said what he really thinks. So uh, he's uh, pr- pursuing it more gradually, but uh, choking off just about all growth opportunities. Uh, long-term growth opportunities. The only one that the government has accepted is the uh, 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 Trans Mountain Pipeline to uh, uh, to Alberta uh, to Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, but um, the other pipelines, the government has just stood aside while they were killed in one way or another. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's clear what the government's vision is: gradual euthanization of the industry. Um, well, in, in that context, I think it's worth uh, repeating that we've had an awful lot of major scale energy projects uh, in particularly uh, oil and gas uh, really put on hold and uh, taken off the table. We have a lot of business investment that sadly no longer sees Canada as an appropriate place to invest. And, and then the uh, federal government ends up picking up the pieces to purchase these pipelines. So this has been a unmitigated disaster as we look at not only the need for that energy, but also the uh, associated investment and employment, I mean, and benefits to First Nations people. And they've been, in many respects, one of the, the biggest losers of them all. Um, and and this is, uh, this is uh, unprecedented. This has not happened in history before, has it, Tom? I can't remember it, uh, something like this. I mean, all the majors now have, have run for the exits. Right. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, they were uh, heavily investing in the oil sands and the uh, thing was booming. Now they've sold, uh, got out the best way they can. Canadian companies have uh, have bought what's left. But, uh, uh, you know, you lose a lot when you lose the biggest international investors uh, from your industry. And that's what ha- that's what's happened. So th- there is some growth in the system because, you know, these these major projects – um come on stream over years and sometimes decades so there was there was some stuff planned which has been completed so there is there is some growth coming on stream um but the longer term prospects are terrible and that's that's where we see uh you know there may be some short-term investment just to keep keep alive what has already been started but the longer term uh, prospects uh, until we can do something about the governmental situation, the longer term prospects are bad. Um, you know, if you can't get your product to market, pipelines are blocked, everything is delayed. Uh, you know, the majors, you know, they don't have to screw around with Canada if that's the way it is. They can invest anywhere in the world and they will. Well, exactly. So when we look at this, um, issue strategically now, what really are the options for Alberta uh, to really turn this mess around? This is a very difficult situation, not only for Alberta, I would argue for a country. Yeah. Well, we ponder this in the book and we try and make some, uh, um, some suge- look at the options. Um, the most drastic option is to head for the exits ourselves. Um, a robust policy of separation that may come to that someday. Uh, Albertans, you know, are not ready for that yet. But uh, if things keep running against us, they might become the. They might accept that. Um, the other option is to 
try and become part of a government, a more favorable government in Ottawa, uh, as happened uh, under Mr. Harper. Um, Preston Manning advocates this in his chapter, very eloquent defense of the idea of uh, uh, renewed alliances with other provinces. Um, I'm, not, I'm not against that. I think that that could be helpful. But the the big picture has been that in the past that the gains that have been made that way uh, tend to get rolled back once once that party is out of power. So what we have said is worth looking at is what, what we call autonomism. Um, Alberta taking more control of its own destiny, using the powers that it already has under the Canadian Constitution uh, to assume its, its, its jurisdictions. For example, uh, transfer out of the Canada Pension Plan to an Alberta Pension Plan. Uh, creation of an Alberta police force rather than contract policing with the RCMP. Um, fighting back against equalization, which the policy of which pumps several billion dollars a year out of Alberta. Um, those are some of the main, those are some of the main uh, things. There are, there are some minor ones, but those are some of the main ones. Uh, interestingly, the father of all of this, if you trace these ideas back, they go back to the so-called firewall letter of 2000, of who the prime mover there was Stephen Harper before he decided to uh, take a run at federal politics. Mm -hmm. um, he, uh, the, I, I actually held the pen on it, but the whole idea was Stephen. And then we got uh, important contributions from Ted Morton and, and others. Mm -hmm. um, so these ideas have been kicking around for about 20 years. And Jason Kenney picked them up uh, when he pulled off the merger of, of right-wing parties in Alberta, and he included quite a bit of the autonomous uh, perspective in his platform. Mm -hmm. And then after being elected in 2019, he appointed the Fair Deal Commission, chaired by Preston Manning, which came back with a, a set of detailed recommendations along the lines that I've just mentioned. Um, but then COVID struck, and uh, COVID has big-footed everything else. Um, so some of these ideas have now been studied, but the only one that's coming forward in a concrete way is the referendum on equalization, which will be held in conjunction with civic elections on October 18th of this year. And that could be the start of a concerted effort to try and get a better deal for Alberta through um, a new equalization policy. But I have to say the government has not pushed it very hard. They've put it out there. But up to this point, they've they've done very little to promote the agenda. So I I don't know uh, how far it's going to go. But anyway, um, at least in a tentative way, this government has has embraced the autonomous agenda and has taken a, a step one step in that direction. So we'll see whether it, it has also commissioned reports on an Alberta pension plan and on the uh, on an Alberta police force. Uh, so maybe we will see some more motion uh, in that direction. Tom, when you when you reference um, that that kind of strategy, then working within confederation, of course, um, it strikes me that one of the points made in the in the chapters is just that there's, uh, I think it's by uh, Donald Savoy who says Canada's national political institutions have blinders on them. What, is, what did he really mean by that? Yeah, this is actually one of the most interesting chapters in the book. 
uh, Donald Savoy is a, a very prominent political scientist uh, in this country, widely published, uh, president of the Canadian Political Science Association and so forth. Um, he's not a Westerner. He, he's a Maritimer uh, from New Brunswick. He's a, you know, a Canadian name. Uh, but he looks at the Constitution and he points out the structural defects, which have also uh, had a lot of effect upon the Atlantic provinces as well as upon the West. So he goes through all the different institutions, the Supreme Court, the Senate, the House of Commons, the public service. He shows how they're all weighted toward the interests of the majority voters in central Canada. And, uh, and he says that this this is what makes it's, – it's the design of our Constitution. Um, now, just take one uh, illustration of this, uh, Senate reform. Uh, many countries have a Senate in which the constituent governments have an equal number of representatives in the Senate. It's supposed to be, it's deliberately constructed that way as a balance against majoritarianism. You got people concentrated in certain areas. Uh, okay, they're going to dominate the lower house, but the upper house can be a house of the federation in which the constituent elements uh, have, have a stronger say. Well, maybe that was supposed to be part of the idea behind the Canadian Senate at the beginning, but as it's been, uh, as it's developed with the appointments being ma made by the, uh, uh, well, basically by the prime minister recommending to the governor general, um, it has not been a defender of, of the uh, regions. So, reforms idea there, the Triple E Senate, modeled on the Senates of, say, Australia or United States or Switzerland, um, seems like a, a way of getting greater protection for regional interests. Um, but what uh, uh, Prime Minister Harper made a serious attempt to move in that direction uh, with some legislative reforms to the Senate, <clears throat> but they were declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, another centralist institution. So, uh, you know, ref reform ideas, political reform ideas keep uh, keep getting nullified. Uh, there's just so much inertia against them. This is what Preston Manning found out. This is what Stephen Harper found out. So Savoy uh, analyzes all of this in, you know, sort of a political science -y sort of way. Uh, so it's quite an important. Uh, another essay I'd point out, the unexpected sympathy um, from Derek Burney. Derek Burney, uh, you know, former, nobody's more part of the Canadian establishment than Derek Burney, former Indeed. chief of staff to Prime Minister Mulroney, former ambassador to the United States. Uh, but, uh, you know, he says in his chapter, you know, he per understands perfectly the feelings of Albertans uh, about, he says, if they can't get a better deal, uh, they'd be perfectly justified in separating. I mean, that's not exactly his words, but that's the sentiment. Uh, you but know, but it begs saying? the question, the situation of Alberta. And, you know, I, I think it's been fascinating to learn that history that you, you're alluding to, Tom, because in many respects, the architects of the Canadian Constitution, as, as Savoie underlines, really migrated a lot of the UK constitutional system right into Canada and which is more uh, obviously a much smaller country geographically and geography in Canada is so defining as a huge country. Our systems really don't represent 
our country well regionally. Um, well, the highly central, line. yeah, the highly centralized system it actually doesn't even work very well in Britain anymore. Uh, they have, you know, yeah. they have very serious regional problems with Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. Indeed, uh, they may end up losing the whole Celtic fringe eventually. Um, but yeah, for Canada, it, you know, it was uh, I think history has shown that it was just too centralized for a, a country that was diverse from the beginning because of the English and French uh, difference, and then as as it expanded by taking in other colonies um, from the West, British Columbia and from Rupert's land and so on, uh, the country becomes even more diverse. And uh, let me just, I've got a phone in my office and it's ringing. Let me just turn it off. Certainly. probably somebody trying to raise money you know i get about 10 fundraising <laughs> calls a day this is my this is my punishment for introducing telefundraising into conservative politics when i was working for harper okay. <laughs> we made a we made a ton of money and we based our political successes on aggressive fundraising but now i have to listen to all these calls <laughs> right so it all comes it all comes back to roost so to speak Tom. that's us yeah no good um, deed goes unpunished but it is uh, interesting as well because um uh, you know, for long years, there's been the, the notion that within every cabinet, um, federally or otherwise, there's careful selection that goes to uh, selecting ministers for the regional considerations. Um, but within the age of the prime minister's office and the power um, within those institutions, again, the regional voice kind of comes to an end is that right tom well i mean first of all there is no there's no liberal member of parliament from alberta so th there is no l alberta that's a problem the, then the cabinet. yeah it's a problem and uh, you know we actually i going to go back in history we got some uh, some decent favors from the Cretchen government when ann mcclellan was political minister for alberta um that i mean it's a curiosity now but uh, that's what unleashed the growth in the oil sands was a deal between Ralph Klein and Jean Chrétien, which was brokered by Anne McClellan. So, uh, but, but the truth is the liberals haven't been able to elect anybody in Alberta and there is nobody there. The inner circle in the cab, uh, in, in the PMO also, I, I can't think of a prominent name from Alberta. Maybe there's somebody there, but I, I, I sure don't know about it. They're writing. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we don't we don't really have much of a voice there. Um, so we don't have regional ministers. We don't have certainly a triple E Senate elected, efficient, and or sorry, effective. equal elected and yes. uh, effective. Equal elected and effective was supposed to be the triple E. So the Senate has been hobbled, and the Supreme Court, um, I think that's cited in the book as well, has made. Um, a tremendous number of decisions that really have not um, uh, continued to to centralize power. It's not again uh, respecting those regional considerations. Well, yeah, the Supreme Court. You know, we have nine members. Three of them have to be civil law members from Quebec. Uh, the, the this government has introduced a new policy that all members of the Supreme Court have to be bilingual at the time they're appointed. Well, how many leading um, legal minds from uh, Alberta are going to be bilingual, uh, mm -hmm. or, or Manitoba or Saskatchewan, for that matter? I mean, you know, there may Manitoba has a slightly larger francophone community, maybe, but uh, it it 
it limits your selection so much so that the Supreme Court is basically stacked against uh, the West as well. Um, you know, so you go through all the main institutions, right? Parliament, Cabinet, Senate, Supreme Court. Uh, where do you, where do you find a, uh, something that's influential for the for the West and for Alberta? Well, you don't. That's the reality of it. That's what Savoy analyzes so carefully. And in this case, then, uh, I know some premiers have argued that they are a regional voice. Is that really happening? Well, yeah, that's what you're left with. I mean, that's that's about the best you could do. Uh, and uh, sometimes that may be helpful if the prime minister feels a need for uh, um, support from the premiers. But that, it's... It's pretty spotty, you know. I mean, Stephen Harper, he just quit meeting with the premiers altogether. Uh, other prime ministers have had meetings, but it doesn't mean that they do what premiers are asking them to do. Um, so it, it's a pretty weak read. It's probably better than nothing, but it's a, a pretty weak read to, lie, to rely upon. So as we look to the fall, we have um, this upcoming referendum. Um, or uh, where, where is that headed in Alberta? You said that the government is not uh, promoting it. Why is that? I wish I knew. I would have thought this would be a high priority for the uh, for the government, and maybe they will surprise me. Maybe they're just waiting till the end of the federal election. Mm -hmm. It'll be about three <coughs> about excuse me about four weeks after the federal election until the civic elections are held. Uh, so maybe the government will promote it then but right now uh you know you can go days without reading weeks without reading anything about it in the media um i think the the, the question is do you do you want to, uh, to uh, repeal section 36 of the constitution act of 1982 which is the one that entrenches equalization in the constitution now this is actually a kind of a indirect thing it's uh, it's a way of getting the discussion on the table. I think Albertans would be happy uh, if we could just get some changes in the terms of equalization without repealing the whole thing. But the, the Supreme Court has said that if a, one province asks for a constitutional change, other provinces and the federal government have a duty to at least discuss it. So this is a way, the theory behind this is, it's a way of, of uh, forcing it onto the political agenda. Albertans ask for constitutional change. Other governments are, you know, obliged to at least respond to it. And then you can perhaps have a dialogue about whether equalization is, uh, uh, is <coughs> excuse me, is fair. Um, I think the proposition will probably pass. There hasn't been a lot of polling on it. Mm -hmm. The only, the only polling uh, I've see, heard, I didn't even see it. I just heard about it says that the proposition probably will pass, but uh, it, it's not getting nearly the attention that it really should get if it's going to be effective. You need a resounding vote in order to, to attract attention in the rest of the country. And if it just passes sort of narrowly, uh, other governments will ignore it. Exactly. So that vote is important and uh, that is in October. So we'll certainly be watching very carefully. And I think the other side to it, uh, and we'll get to this in a moment, is the upcoming election. Um, but in this case, we have some opportunities to try to reform some of the things within government. And there's a question here from 
from uh, our participants is would restoring the Privy Council to the realm of the Governor General help on the road to restoring democracy? Uh, well, I don't, uh, you know, I, think, I, I think it's an idea which is not realistic. I think the, the constitutional evolution has uh, made the Privy Council uh, a kind of decoration. The cabinet is the working part of the Privy Council. And it's been that way for 150 years. I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's going to change. It's, you know, if you were drawing on a blank sheet of paper, sheet of paper, maybe you could do it. But I, I don't think there's any realistic way of doing that. So it's it's privy council is really a, a kind of a a, a modest convention, um, but it did have its genesis uh, hundreds of years ago. Is that right? Uh, well, the privy council today consists of. Uh, everybody who's ever been a cabinet minister once you're appointed when you're appointed a cabinet minister you're also appointed to the uh, mm -hmm. to the privy council i mean cabinet has almost no legal basis in canada everything is done in the name of governor general and council mm -hmm. but, so the privy council has hundreds of members uh, and but the only time it meets is if like the queen were to come and there'd be a ceremonial meeting uh in practice the working part is the cabinet of the day so um the Privy Council has no real functions. Uh, it's, it's just a nice title. Even after you, you know, you retire, or you're defeated while well, you remain a Privy Councillor and you can, you can put PC after your name, but <coughs> it's, it, it doesn't denote a function. Right. So I, I don't think there's a realistic prospect of turning it into a functioning body. Now, Tom, in this um, whole context of um, confederation, trying to make confederation work better, not just simply for Alberta, but for others, where is the opportunity for Alberta to work with other provinces that have a remarkably similar case? I'm thinking of whether it's British Columbia, Saskatchewan, or even some of the Atlantic provinces. There's some really serious issues here that we need to address as a country to create a better a sense of fairness and these are big dollars that impact people's lives yeah no absolutely you know alberta can't is going to need allies to uh to get any change and preston manning is completely right about that um and jason kenny has tried to do this uh he has visited quebec uh he's refrained from launching all-out attacks on on quebec and uh, he's uh He's actually been quite conciliatory towards British Columbia as well. Um, so I think, in the, I think he is trying to do this, uh, but there's, there's limits on how far you can go with that when other provinces go out of their way uh, to attack your interests. You know, like uh, Quebec is uh, history on hydrocarbons, uh, not just Energy East, but other project as, uh, projects as well. Mm -hmm. Government of Quebec has basically said no pipeline can ever cross the soil of Quebec. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's difficult to build an alliance with the province that takes that view. So, but, but you're right. It ha there has to be an element of that uh, for anything to succeed. Okay. But in that case, um, when there was the um, um, infamous uh, case where a different Quebec leadership expressed uh, concern and um, refused to give their consent to the major pipeline East project, including across Quebec, um, I think there was a lot of, uh, it sent a shockwave right across the country that how could this be that a province like that would, instead of using Canadian oil, would sooner import foreign oil? 
Exactly. And, uh, and the reality is that at the same time, uh, I believe it was the mayor of Montreal, Danny Corday, who said um, they would refuse to grant that kind of passage while at the same time we're putting uh, raw wastewater into the St. Lawrence River. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, and, and it's not just Quebec. I mean, Quebec is the most egregious example, but British Columbia also tried to block uh, any oil pipeline um, from Alberta at the same time as they were greenlighting a natural gas pipeline, which would use gas, which would be produced mainly in British Columbia. Um, now that pipeline is going through and I have to give credit for the, to the federal liberal government for standing behind the, the oil TMX oil pipeline. That's the one project I mentioned that they have actually stood behind uh, in a very convoluted sort of way, which practically bankrupted it and forced them to take it over. But they did eventually step up on that. And so kudos to the government for that. But that's the one case where they have gone to bat for Alberta. Um, really so yeah, so when you get provincial behavior like that, it's it's difficult to uh, to reach out. Uh, you I mean your citizens are are uh, enraged by the, when they see provincial behavior like that from other governments, and so it's hard to make nice with them when <laughs> when they're treating you like that. Yeah. So in this context, uh, one of the things that uh, is is quite remarkable is the numbers, and I wanted to share this a little bit uh, from the economic analysis in the book. Um, and I believe the measurement or period um, summarized was 1961 to 2018 period in Alberta's total net fiscal contribution was $631 billion. And that was compared to Ontario at $768 billion and British Columbia at $138 billion. So these are, are really quite massive amounts of transfer of monies across these different programs. It's not just equalization. And, um, and there's also the recipients. The largest net recipients were Quebec, $497 billion. Nova Scotia at $320 billion. New Brunswick at $212 billion. Manitoba at $184 billion. Newfoundland and Labrador at $177 billion. And the territories at $121 and, and when you think of it relative to population, these are um, astounding kinds of figures. And I think the question will be, um, is this sustainable as the oil and gas industry is now going to be phased out in Alberta if, um, if some parties have their way? Uh, well, I think, the, I think the answer is no. Um, <clears throat> let's be clear about this. Uh, the main driver of this astounding transfer is not the equalization program. Equalization program is is certainly important and it's worth reforming, but the main driver is the progressive income tax. Um, prosperous provinces pay much more income tax, which the government of, of Canada then uses to fund programs to help other provinces. So um, the biggest single thing you could do to redress uh, this ongoing transfer is to uh, make the income tax somewhat less progressive. Uh, but, but in fact, governments have been going the other way of raising the highest rate. First thing Justin did when he got into office, you know, he said, well, we're just asking you to pay a little bit more. Uh, now, uh, the NDP leader wants to raise it again. 
the liberals will probably have to raise it again and and again because of their enormous deficits they're proposing. Um, you know, they're going to be desperate for money. So every time you do that, every time you make the income tax more progressive, you penalize the uh, provinces which have been more prosperous. Right. So that, that's, that's, there's a lot more to this, but that's the starting point is the progressive income tax. So I just want to turn to our um, participants or audience. Uh, they're welcome to keep posing uh, uh, questions. Um, just uh, look at the uh, chat um, and uh, pose your question. They're, those are very welcome. Um, as our uh, conversation with Tom Flanagan continues. Now, one of the things I found fascinating, Tom, was the chapter eight, Alberta has viable trade options with Derek Burney and uh, Fenn um, Osler Hampson. And it was fascinating because one of the, um, and this is a former uh, U.S. ambassador, uh, bringing forward obviously ways to improve trade, but was some type of autonomous association with the United States of America, no less. So I thought that was a, a very intriguing option because um, I, I don't think that, I think it's the first time I've, I've heard that articulated uh, so clearly. Yeah. Well, there's one school of thought uh, pushing that line a little bit even further. Uh, there's one school of thought that says Alberta would be better off as uh, an independent country because um, international treaties and uh, international law give landlocked countries a, a right of innocent passage um, so their neighbors are not, at least under international law, their neighbors are not uh, able to uh, bottle them up. Mm. They, uh, so anyway, there's one school of thought that Alberta would actually have a stronger uh, ability to get its products to market uh, than we do as part of Canada. Now, I'm not, I don't know if that's true. I'm not an expert on international law. I just, I just point out that there are very, some very serious people think that Alberta does have options uh, that we do not have to remain part of Canada to have viable trade options. Um, becoming part of the United States, uh, I doubt it. Um, I don't think the Americans would want us, frankly. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons uh, uh, why why Alberta would not be the most. Uh, I mean, it's, it's tied up with political rivalries in the United States between Republicans and Democrats. And <clears throat> I, I sort of doubt that you could put together the coalition that you'd need in the U.S. Uh, even if Alberta petitioned for admission to the United States, I don't think that would happen. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a school of thought that says Alberta as an independent. Uh, landlocked yes on the map landlocked but still under international law would have better opportunities for moving its products than it has now so i just toss that out without being able to okay say for sure whether that's true but right. that's what some people think so there's a range of options we have on one hand trying to improve the existing federation and all those systems given their uh, um, quite profound limitations in history and their really focus, frankly, on Ontario and Quebec. At the same time, um, I think what's alluded in the book several times is how can the uh, province of Alberta, among others, mimic um, Quebec's special rights um, that they've been able to carve up. As we look at the current election, uh, the Bloc Québécois is uh, advocating for even more uh, powers, of course, um, in this election. Is that a play for Alberta? And if so, why are they not all over that? Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's it's funny. Um, we history could have moved perhaps in a different direction if uh, Preston Manning, when he founded the Reform Party, had not wanted to create a nationwide party. Mm. Um, the, the Reform Party was uh, uh, just a Western party <clears throat> in its first two elections in '88 and '93, but then subsequently went. Uh, well, in in '93, it, it, it included Ontario uh, and and the Maritimes, but then later went into Quebec and became fully nationalized. Um, most people, or many not most, many people in '93 in that election thought that we would get a minority government because they thought that uh, uh, reform would sweep the West, but would uh, not have any impact elsewhere. So they thought you'd have a lot of reformers from the West, a lot of uh, uh, BQ members from Quebec. Uh, you'd have conservatives and liberals from Ontario and Atlantic Canada. Nobody would have a majority. Uh, pizza parliament. Um, you know, maybe a, a Western Reform Party might have had some been a coalition partner. Uh, you know, the, well, what happened was that reform did sweep the West, but also undermined the conservatives in Ontario, so that the liberals swept Ontario and. They cruised to majority government then, three successive elections. If you had a purely Western party, um, possibly, it could be like the Bloc Québécois. It could be a regional voice uh, and prevent anybody from having a majority. And so then it might become an important coalition partner, or at least uh, supporting a minority government might be able to get concessions in return for its support. But, but uh, you know, we didn't take that path. Preston wanted a national party and his strategy seemed to work. I mean, indirectly leading through mergers and renamings and then we end up with the United Conservative Party. We ended up with a national government for 10 years, which was relatively sympathetic to the West. Um, but that government was eventually defeated and we seem to, you know, Sisyphus Rocks has rolled downhill again. So <laughs> the... Interestingly, the new Maverick Party in Alberta and Saskatchewan is is now talking about being a purely Western party, but mm. they don't show any signs of going anywhere this election. So, it's it's. I think it may be the right idea, but I don't think it's. Uh, at least in Alberta, uh, people are so desperate to replace the Liberals that they will. They they just want to vote. Uh, for the party think has the best chance of repla replacing them. And that would be for now, at least the United Conservative Party. So I think UCP will probably sweep uh, Alberta this time. What does that leave us with a liberal party again, supported by the NDP? Uh, that's probably worse for Alberta than a liberal majority. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Um, so, Perhaps we could shift a little bit to the election, Tom. I know that uh, you have uh, incredible experience and a keen observer of um, our uh, political landscape. Um, what's your sense of how the election has started off, Tom? Well, it's, it's, it's been extremely interesting because there was all this polling before the election uh, showing the liberals with a big lead and uh, all the liberal mouthpieces in the media uh, CBC and the Toronto Star and so forth, uh, you know, one attack after another against uh, um, Mr. O'Toole. Um, 
you know, it looked like it was going to be a foregone conclusion. And the liberals were scattering money around the country like crazy, you know, $500 check for uh, transfer payment to seniors and you know, on and on and on. Six billion for Newfoundland for Muskrat Falls and a billion dollars to Alberta, you know, Calgary for the Green Line. I, I, mean, I lost track after a while. Um, <laughs> but as soon as the writ was dropped, the liberal lead started to disappear. And hmm. uh, the latest tracking uh, poll as, as results I saw this morning, Nano's tracking poll, the conservatives were actually in the lead. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you know, there's still three weeks, three and a half weeks to go. I'm not making any predictions, but it is not unfolding as the, the liberals were expecting it to. I think, I think O'Toole had been unfairly vilified and, uh, uh, you know, people, when they actually see him, he comes out, they see, hey, this guy can walk and talk at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, O'Toole is an accomplished person. He's been in the military. He's a lawyer. Uh, he was an MP. He was a cabinet minister. Uh, you know, he's a very uh, decent, experienced man. And uh, so sometimes this happens. You get a rebound effect. And I think that's happening here. Now, as I say, I can't predict who's going to. We have to remember that in the last election, the conservatives got more votes than the liberals as well. But they, the conservatives run up, uh, you might call them super majorities, in parts of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, more votes than you actually need to win, mm -hmm. and over concentration and, of them. Yeah, they don't get they don't get you seats. So you have to get the votes in the right places. Uh, well, th you know. This is uh, would you call it a horse race? Yeah. Well, right now I would. Um, if if Justin comes back with less than a majority, you know he's going to be seriously damaged. To mm -hmm. uh, Two minorities in a row. The knives are the knives are going to be out. Um, I don't know whether the NDP will prop him up again. Uh, you know, I mean, all these are unanswered questions, but it's mm -hmm. uh, it, it's really actually quite exciting now. And uh, my biggest weakness as a pundit, you know, David, I could never foretell the future. If I could have foretold the future, I, I would not just be a lousy retired professor now. I'd be, I'd be right. something far more important. But I, I could never foretell the future. So <laughs> all I can say is it's, it's become a lot more exciting than it, everybody thought it was going to be. Indeed. Um, so when we look at the election, boy, are there a lot of hot topics. Um, just right off the top, we've got things such as um, if we look at the past uh, record of the government, we've got uh, concerns regarding ethics or corruption. I think of SNC Lavalin. I think of um, all kinds of more recent things that really relate to how did the government really manage this whole COVID 19 lockdown and associated issues. And now we have things such as vaccine passports to um, the whole challenge of Afghanistan. We have um, arguably uh, significant attacks on basic freedoms that we seem to take for granted on the internet or elsewhere. The reemergence of human rights commissions. On the economy, we've got um, some challenges there in inflation and debt. I think we've uh, spent, Tom, more money than, in fact, World War II as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to believe. And... Uh, and that's just uh, a quick summary. Are there, what are the key issues that you think are going to drive this election? 
Um, <clears throat> well, let me answer in two ways. First of all, as to the key election, key issues in the minds of voters, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't have my own polling company. I don't have any good data to tell me what voters are most concerned about. I'm assuming that this is going to come out during the course of the campaign that we will read some polling that gives us an idea of what voters are most concerned about. I can tell you what I'm most concerned about, and that is the uh, uh, the runaway deficit spending, mm -hmm. because I, I've seen this movie before. Uh, you know, the only advantage to being old is that you do have some memories <laughs> until you lose those two. Right. And uh, <laughs> I remember the 1970s and the and the 80s and the deficits seeming to just go on forever and get bigger and bigger. Uh, and Mulroney government's attempt to uh, control deficit spending, which had some success, but not enough because the, the debt had become so large and interest rates were so high that um, it was self-sustaining. Um, you needed all the uh, tax re revenues that you were getting just to pay the interest on the debt. Um, so you couldn't really make the uh, progress that you needed against the deficit. And it won't be long until we reach that point again, you know, with you keep piling up these hundred million dollar plus deficits, a billion, I should say, hundred billion dollar plus deficit. Won't, uh, interest rates will go up. We will get some inflation and uh, we'll be in the same sort of situation that we were, which I could see developing like a runaway train, but you can't stop it in the 70s and 80s. Um, are we headed for stagflation in your mind? Yeah, that's that's my fear. Is that what I see here is the early stages of the, the path on the road to stagflation, in which we will have uh, high inflation, uh, very high deficits, high unemployment, and it's going to take some tough son of a bitch like Gretchen to finally deal with it. Mm -hmm. Now, the way he did it wasn't pretty. He he pushed most of it onto the provinces, let them take the blame for it. Uh, cut transfers to the provinces and the provinces had to explain to voters why they were closing hospitals and so on. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it had to be done and Gretchen was tough enough to do it when he finally decided he, he had to. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was an ugly time. And this went on for, for um, well, you know, more than 20 years before Canada really came to grips with it. Uh, and that's what I'm afraid of is that we're now in the early stages of another cycle like mm -hmm. that you know, maybe we can nip it in the bud in this election um I'm is there needs real the answer as to why i mean any any dispassionate observer looking at the canadian scene would say wow we've got some tough decisions to make we're off the rails on so many areas um why does it take such a long grind if you will to come <clears> to grips with what needs to be decided here? You think of ultimately in 1994, that, as you say, Tom, was the result of years of discussion and years of grappling with something that arguably should have been dealt with for the sake of our kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all a matter I'll put on my professorial hat for a minute. It's all a matter of, of incentives. Um, politicians have the incentives to uh, get elected and reelected. And, um, the, the simplest way to do that is to spend other people's money. Uh, and if you can't raise it by taxes, you can borrow it. And it's painless in the short term. So 
introduce another program, borrow the money, people are, are happy and you keep doing it. Um, it. It's actually very simple. And it's not that much different from uh, the way your teenager manages money. But uh, <laughs> except these are not supposed to be teenagers, these are supposed to be adults running the country. Indeed. So uh, uh, the incentives are overwhelming for people in public life. And that's why you you never come to grips with these issues really until you face some kind of crisis. Gretchen um, finally came to grips with it in late 94, not because he was a, a brilliant high-minded leader, but because he was faced with the devaluation of the dollar. People were talking about the Canadian peso. It was a, it was a uh, basic a monetary crisis and he finally decided that something had to be done. Um, see, that's what bothers me is that we're, we're getting on this track and my previous experience tells me that you don't get off the track until you're almost ready for a crash. Uh, so, you know, and when I look at the conservative, the United Conservative Party's platform and O'Toole, uh, it, it's only marginally better than the liberals in fiscal terms. Uh, he's pretty much matching the, the liberals in the spending of money. So uh, maybe we'll be marginally better. And I think he, he would be friendlier towards Alberta so I would, you know, I would vote for that party. But in terms of this fiscal problem that we're talking about, I'm not really optimistic that he, even if he does become prime minister, that he's going to come to grips with it. Uh, so we may be caught in a sort of a twilight zone of many years where this is what happened again in the 80s, where people talk about fiscal responsibility, but don't actually do it. Exactly. And, yeah. and meanwhile, beneath the surface, things are getting worse and worse until you finally simply can't ignore it any longer. But I'll be dead by then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, Tom, well said. And thank you so much for joining us today and for um, playing such a leadership role on so many fronts uh, around policy discussion across Canada and for this recent book, The Moment of Truth, How to Think About Alberta's Future. So thank you very much, uh, Tom, for joining us today. Well, thanks, David. It's a, uh, really a privilege to be here. Frontier Center does great work, and I'm really happy to be speaking to the people through that. Thank you very much, Tom. Tom Flanagan, uh, a former advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, is a professor emeritus of political science and distinguished fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. That's it for today with the Frontier and Thinker's Corner. We're so glad that everyone could join us. Uh, today. And we're very glad that uh, each of you continue to be in touch with the Frontier. Be sure to sign up for our free newsletter and to stay tuned for the next um, episode of our uh, Thinker's Corner. And also, I wish you and your family all the best and be sure to vote. <laughs>